Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. In this episode, I speak with Professor John Cochran of the University of Chicago and currently Senior Fellow of the Hoover Institution. We talk about the future of finance, the future of education, regulation of free markets, and the efficient market hypothesis. I hope you enjoy the show. Check out all the links and the show notes on economicrockstar.com forward slash John Cochran. John is known as the Grumpy Economist. I think MOOCs will become the modern textbook because I've noticed students these days don't read anything anyway. The class itself can be a much more rewarding, personal, interactive uh, experience. And that, that's how I'm using it in classrooms. And that's how I encourage other people to use it too. What makes free markets work is the discipline of competition, of the ability of new entrants to come in and, and disrupt things. The fact that you couldn't predict in 2008 confirms efficient markets. If, in fact, anybody knew it was happening, then efficient markets would be wrong. Hello, economic rock stars. Today, I welcome Professor John Cochran to the show. Hello, John. Welcome to the show. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. John Cochran is the AQR Capital Management Distinguished Service Professor of Finance at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business and is currently Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. John is a research associate of the National Bureau of Economic Research and past director of its asset pricing program and an adjunct scholar of the Cato Institute. John is the author of three books, including the book Asset Pricing. He currently teaches the MBA class, Advanced Investments and a variety of PhD classes in asset pricing and monetary economics. John earned a bachelor's degree in physics at MIT and earned his PhD in economics at the University of California at Berkeley. John blogs as the Grumpy Economist. John, anytime I've seen you, whether it's an image or a video, you appear far from grumpy. You're always smiling. Why the Grumpy Economist? Well, yeah, I am not a grumpy person, except for when I'm, uh, I don't know if you saw the little cartoon in the top right of the Grumpy Economist. That's my son's version of uh, me reading the op-eds in the morning. So, you know, some some new horrible thing comes out of Washington and I slam down my coffee and my son said, ah, you're the grumpy economist. <laughs> John, I've studied economics and you were quite an influence, to be honest, with some of your papers with John Campbell. So I'm, I'm very, very honored to be speaking with you today. You've moved on with a lot of your research as well. And you propose what I'd like to talk about is a new structure for the U.S. federal debt. What do you see as the future of finance, given the situation we've encountered over the last seven years? Uh, so there's two questions there. One is the structure of federal debt, which is only vaguely related. And the other question is the future of finance. Uh, so let me drill down to what, what you want to talk about with the future of finance, because there's a lot of questions there. So how is the financial markets going to get structured? How is financial regulation going to get structured? And what are academic finance people going to be doing? So where do you want to start with all that? Well, I'd, I'd love to start with the role of the central bank, maybe government bonds, and how we could actually try to free up or disassociate the run on banks with short-term borrowings and long-term borrowings. Yeah, that's um, so where that structure of federal debt started is it's together with a paper I wrote called uh, Toward a Run-Free Financial System. I've been thinking about ever since the financial crisis, uh, what went wrong with the financial crisis and what's the centrally most important thing and, and how we can fix it. 
You know, the problem when you read about the financial crisis, there's just this long list of thousands and thousands of things that went wrong. And you read the legislation, we're deep into the mark to market rules for swap dealer transactions, so forth. You, you go to yourself, oh my gosh, if this is what it takes, it's hopeless. As I came down to thinking about the crisis I, uh, and, and reading everything I could find about it, the bottom line is we had a run. And it's a run like a good old fashioned bank run. You've seen the movies, uh, Mary Poppins, when Michael wants his tuppence and the bank will give it and anybody comes to get their money at the same time. Well, that's what happened to us. Now, deeply, why did that happen to us? Because our economy over the last 20 years, our economies, the world economy, developed something really quite great, which is uh, electronic interest paying money. So most of the financial system uses overnight repurchase agreements, money market funds, short-term government bonds, uh, things that are, are, they're electronic, they're very liquid, you can send them back and forth and they, um, and they pay interest and that's been great. But unfortunately, sort of like 19th century banknotes, there was always a run on them. Uh, I mean, there occasionally runs on them. So the crucial, for financial stability, the crucial thing is, is to have us get away from this run-prone system where, uh, you know, Lehman Brothers, when it went under, it had a portfolio of mortgage-backed securities, and it was financing it by overnight debt every night. For every $30 invested, they had to find 29 new dollars to pay off last night's $29 plus interest. You can tell why that sort of that blew up. So uh, where these thoughts led me to is um, uh, I really love what our Federal Reserve has done. We vastly expand reserves and make them uh, pay interest. And I, I was thinking, gee, the Treasury should do this too. We would solve this problem if, our, as our governments all provided currency in the 19th century, well, our governments should provide interest-paying electronic money that can't be run in the 21st century uh, so that the, both the, either the Treasury or the Fed could give us all the chance to have something that looks like a money market fund. It's, it's always worth a dollar in the U.S. or a, a euro or a pound, depending on your on your uh, currency, it pays interest. Uh, it's electronically transferable, but you can never have a run. And if that sort of thing was the basis of our financial system, we would we would cure financial stability. We'd have more efficient payments, and and, uh, and, and it would never rain again, and so on and so. Forth. <laughs> so you're removing the pressure of a bank trying to repay to short-term debt. Yeah, I'm, I'm all for banks. Now, this is often called narrow banking, and I don't, I don't like that term. Right? I like I like wide banking, but I like equity finance banking. Uh, banks, when they want to take your money and invest in something risky, that's fine, mm -hmm. but they can't promise that you can always get your money out any time you want if you're going to do that. Uh, if they're going to take your money and invest it in something risky, uh, then you have to bear some of that risk. You may have to wait to get your money back. If a bank or any intermediary wants to take your money and promise you can get it out at any time, then they have to invest it in, in, in this kind of security, uh, which where you can't have runs. Would you propose the removal of, say, T-bills on a oh. governmental level? Yeah, so that's I, I went to the extreme in this uh, structure for U.S. federal debt. There's something else we've noticed that government debt – People seem to love government debt, and, and for good reasons. It's very liquid, and it, it might inflate, but at least U.S. government debt, uh, U.K. Uh, government debt, I, Ireland is in a different situation. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> uh, when you print your own currency, uh, your debt might inflate, but it can't default. So government debt is, is has all these great advantages. And it, so I went to the next step here and said, well, let's not only 
provide some of this uh, government debt that looks like a money market fund, fixed value, acts like money. But why don't we give, give the world lots and lots and lots of it? Uh, so instead of having all the different kinds of T-bills, each of which are kind of small, why doesn't the government just uh, the entire end of the short-term government debt could be this, this interest-paying money? And you have to understand that what's great about it is, is if money pays interest, it's not at all inflationary. So the government can can uh, transform as much of its debt as it wants to into interest-paying overnight debt, and, and it's not going to cause any inflation at all. So let's have lots and lots of the stuff. Flood the markets with it. liquidity is good, so give us trillions. Of, yeah, so I went to the – it doesn't have to – we don't have to go to quite that extreme, but it seems to me the cleanest and nicest way to do it. So this seems to suggest that we should have a mark-to-market approach to – say, the, the government bonds, because any change in daily changes in interest rates must be reflected on the, the value of the bond or the rate, the yield given or the coupon on the bond itself. Um, is that done anyway, or is this something that would be proposed in your suggestion? Well, let's see, Mark, that's a, a different issue. So the, the debt we're talking about for the moment mm-hmm. is overnight debt, and it's always worth exactly one dollar. There's no mark to market needed. It's worth a dollar. What changes is the interest rate on it changes over. So, so, uh, you know, the interest rate on it might go up or down, but the short term debt is always worth exactly one dollar. It's just like a, a money market account, just like reserves at, at a central bank. Now, yeah, long term debt, as interest rates go up and down, long term debt prices go up and down. In sort of my vision here, banks that are not just offering transaction services, they're your deposits at your bank will go up and down in value. It, banks sort of become like a mutual fund where the prices go up and down in value. Yeah, so values go up and down. Then that's a fine thing. What we want in a financial crisis is if a bank loses money, we want the people the bank got money from to immediately have the prices go down and not be able to go run and get their money out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at least in marking to market the value of liabilities is, is a great thing. That's what stops a run. You know, a stock market crash is not a run. It's not a crisis. If a stock, if a company loses money, stock price goes down. It's too late to go get your money back. All you can do is go home and have a whiskey or a beer and be mean to the dog. It's gone, <laughs> but you, then you can't run. And so that's uh, we want mark to market liabilities. There's an accounting issue on marking to market assets, but I'm not. I don't think that's really what you were after there. You mentioned Ireland. It's, it's a special case. So we have our, I'm sure people are aware of the way we were, we had to be bailed out and the Irish government actually guaranteed the bondholders. Is that like something we've experienced with long-term capital management at a, at a financial level whereby banks are too big to fail? Our government, we don't want to give the impression that we're a risky country and we end up guaranteeing the bondholders, but at the expense of the taxpayer. How do you view that? Yeah, I, I'm not quite sure on this. Had to bail out. Uh, <laughs> no, we didn't have to. No, chose chose to bail out. There were options. We're a country yeah. that holds a lot of referendums, and that's one thing we weren't. A referendum wasn't held on. <laughs> exactly, because what happened in Ireland is is Irish banks uh, took a lot of uh, deposits from Germany and invested them in uh, U.S. subprime mortgages. And the money passed through Ireland, and it's not quite clear why it's the taxpayers of Ireland who had to be end up who foot in the bill for that. Why couldn't the depositors from Germany have lost a little bit of their money along the way? That would seem to have made sense. And that's, you know, other countries have taken that approach. Cyprus made its depositors uh, take haircuts. Iceland made its depositors uh, take haircuts. Uh, I think there was a huge pressure from Germany to Ireland that 
if you're going to be in the uh, European Union and the and the uh, Eurozone, you're not going to do it. But uh, when you're a small country with an open banking system, the model of the government bails out all depositors, even foreign depositors, is is not one that can go on. It, that, that that's a troublesome system, and I, I'm, I think Ireland may be regretting. Uh, bailing out all of the depositors uh, in, in the in the process, but yeah, you're, the bigger part of Ireland is you're part of the um, European Union and part of the eurozone, so you can't uh, just print money to bail out people you want to bail out. And uh, government debt in that situation becomes like private debt. Ireland wouldn't have been in that much trouble had it not uh, bailed out the depositors in its banks. Uh, Greece certainly should have just defaulted the way a company defaults. Mm-hmm. And there's this crazy notion that if you uh, that, that Greece has to leave the Eurozone, whereas, you know, if a company defaults on its debt, it doesn't have to leave the, the Eurozone. Why should, you know, countries become like companies. I thought at the time, maybe I'm wrong, I'm no expert on bonds or anything, but why wouldn't a government like Ireland offer like a patriot bond the way the US had done in the past and give the citizens the choice to buy the bonds and let them be the holders, but guarantee those bonds for the citizens? Would that have been an option or would have been another way of raising money instead of had the Troika like the IMF and the ECB come in? Well, that's an interesting idea. Well, it depends on what stage of this crisis you're in. So the banks go under, the government bails out the banks, and then you want the government to get the money to bail out the banks from issuing new bonds. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is that the stage at which it goes? Yeah, Um, yeah. So Patriot bonds say, yeah, we're going to pay you back. I guess you're saying we're going to pay you back before we pay back this other debt. You certainly can't issue bonds to foreigners saying, oh, by the way, we're going to pay out our domestic bonds before we pay you back or the foreigners don't buy those bonds. Or even have a perpetuity, as you propose. Yeah, yeah. Now, that's a different uh, – the perpetuity – you gotta you got to buy your insurance before the fire, I think, is the uh, lesson in all of this. Mm-hmm. If the house is burned down and you haven't bought insurance – you know, now where you're going to borrow some money from is a much harder issue than if you set things up ahead of time. Uh, I think, I hope we've all learned that uh, after the financial crisis. That's true. There's a number of interesting things. I just go slightly off topic that I'd like to share some of your personal background with some of our listeners, if you don't mind. Sure. You're actually a competitive sailplane pilot and you windsurf. Now, I never, yeah. I, I didn't know really what sail, sailplane piloting is in terms of a competition, but you actually represented the United States in Hungary in the World Championships. Yes, yes, I didn't do that well, but, uh, you know, I'll do better next time. <laughs> and how did you get into this? Oh, I was always a kid who loved airplanes, and then you can go take lessons. So your listeners, if you ever wanted to fly a glider, go Google it up and go out to your local airport and take a trial lesson. Don't take a ride. They'll, they'll uh, take your money if you take a ride. But if you say, I want to try a lesson, they'll put you in the front seat and show you how the whole thing works, which is what I did as a kid and started taking lessons, learned to fly, and I've been doing it ever since. And is this something you like to escape from a lot of the work that you do? <laughs> yes. It's, uh, it's, it's like, uh, so racing a sailplane is like racing a uh, sailboat, except in three dimensions at 100 miles an hour. And it's very mentally engaging, so you can't worry about your problems and it's uh it's a very very cerebral sport and it takes you into just beautiful places so gives you an excuse to go spend the weekend in in some gorgeous countryside and then go up in the air and look at the countryside from the air and also on your website you actually give a warning that you could end up being distracted by linking into some of your your family members other web pages you have a very creative family yeah they're all very artistic uh 
they're all uh, they're actually they're, they're great instinctive economists, but their interests are all in various kind of art. I'm very proud of them, so I linked to them from my website. I actually got distracted early on when I first went onto the website, to be honest, and I found myself on YouTube looking at a fantastic animation series. Yes, that's my daughter, Lydia. She's pretty good, isn't she? Absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. I'd love to get an opinion on your standing with MOOCs. I know you've experienced a massive open online course that you delivered based on your PhD program, Asset Pricing. How did that go for you? Yeah, it's been a very interesting experience. I'm an early adopter. I'm, I'm always interested in new technologies. And so I got very interested in the opportunities for online, uh, you know, these online courses. And I decided I wanted to do one. And I, I chose to do my PhD class first. I think that may have been a mistake. <laughs> I thought at the time that it would be easier to go online with something that was cut and dried. You know, here's the material. Uh, rather than something that was more empirical and discussion-focused, like my MBA class. Be that as it may, so I, I have this uh, textbook, too, and so I have this textbook and this PhD class. It's great. I'll put it online, and then anyone around the world who wants to see this can see it. It turned out being a lot more work than I thought it was going to be, but it turned out also being very rewarding. Lots of people take it. They they find it interesting. It's, it's turned out to be useful in lots of unanticipated ways. I'm getting lots of even colleagues from other institutions. They may not take the class, but they say they really like the videos and they, they can brush up on one or two items quickly and painlessly on a plane trip. So it's been a very good experience that way. And it, you know, it allows me to, to leverage in a, a big way. Instead of teaching 10 to 20 students, I'm, I'm teaching hundreds, if not thousands. So it's, it's rewarding to have all my effort go that much further. And when you say a lot of effort go that further, there's a huge infrastructural cost and a lot of time-consuming energy is actually put into developing a course like this. Where do you feel the future is for MOOCs in terms of getting compensation? Because that doesn't exist at the moment. <laughs> well, it depends where. Like any new technology, there are lots of unanticipated different ways in which it can be used, unanticipated different markets that are going to find it. Nobody thought about how that was going to work out. So I uh, I'm not sure there's going to be a the you know way MOOCs work. There's going to be hundreds of ways MOOCs work. You know, the original thought was MOOCs are going to be well, you know, we'll put the thing on and hundreds of thousands of people all over the world will take the class. I actually think it's going to be more useful. You know, universities the first thing they do is they they put up introductory classes that way. Well, everyone puts up introductory classes. I'm kind of a fan of where I went with it. That MOOCs allow you to do very specialized advanced classes. So you can take introductory finance from anywhere. It's, it's about the same. Some people have many versions of the same class, but my class is a kind of a, a distinctive finance class. So I, I think that's one direction MOOCs are going to go, is it allows you to get specialized classes in, in lots of greater variety. But yeah, like all technology, if you've ever made a web page, you know it's a high fixed cost, low marginal cost. And so the secret of the of MOOCs is it is a fairly high fixed cost to put the thing together. If anyone's been thinking about a MOOC, it's, it's not so much the lecture videos. That's easy. It's putting together easy typo free. Uh, it's putting together, not easy, it's putting together significant typo free problem sets and other uh, materials like that. That I found is the, the hard part of the MOOC. But then it, then it scales. So, you know, once it's done, I can give it in, in multiple years and, and it scales to lots and lots of people. So how does it work for your own students in terms of a flipped classroom model? Oh, yeah. The other way, so um, 
people think of MOOCs as this is a substitute for education, a substitute for formal education. And in some cases, that's true. It certainly reaches, can reach people who aren't in a PhD program. But I think MOOCs are also going to be used as one of the many, you know, unanticipated ways they're going to be used. I think MOOCs will become the modern textbook because I've noticed students these days don't read anything anyway. Uh, <laughs> and so I use the MOOC. It's a, it's a self-contained class for people outside the university. But it is the, the textbook for my classroom. So I'm doing this right now because I'm teaching a class at Stanford. And I have the students do a week of MOOC material. They see the little the MOOC lecture. Uh, they do the MOOC problem sets. And then they come to class. And that lets the class be much – I can go on to more advanced material. We can discuss things. It can be a much uh, less formal experience. And I think that makes a class a much better experience. Just, you know, watching my back while I write equations on the board isn't that fun. But uh, if, you've, if you've done that in the, in the online lecture and gotten through some basic quizzes, then the class itself can be a much more rewarding, personal, interactive uh, experience. And that, that's how I'm using it in classrooms. And that's how I encourage other people to use it, too. Uh, if you're listening and you're a professor of finance, you know, instead of assigning reading, just assign a week of the MOOC. And then the students will come to your class having seen a presentation of the material, having done some multiple choice quizzes, and then they'll be much better prepared for, for the deep insights you want to give them. That's an amazing approach to take, all right, because you have a lot of the critical thinking that's needed or the discussions that go on that's actually required. And it almost allows a student to be at a level at where you're at in terms of what you're trying to get across. And instead of doing that in your traditional classroom setting, you have your flipped classroom model that works quite effectively. I'm just wondering ways of monetizing something like this, especially when the course here is based on asset pricing, which is a complement to your book. I'm sure that it could be seen as an add-on whereby you sell the book and you get access to the lectures or, you know, the way TV programs are made in a certain country that can be sold to other countries. Could this be something that you could envision with your own course that you could sell your MOOC asset pricing course to other universities around the world? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, so. One thing I think, um, especially my colleagues in business schools jump too quickly to the how do we monetize things question. Uh, let's remember, we, we professors are paid very nice salaries by nonprofit institutions whose reason for being is to deliver knowledge for free. That's what we do. Um, so we don't have to monetize every cent, but we do have to pay the bills. Now, there's time involved as well. Yeah, and, and, and right. So the money has to come from somewhere. Now, one model is is like the garage band that puts its, uh, puts its stuff up for free on the Internet and then people come to the uh, concerts. And I think that, you know, universities spend millions of dollars on, on branding and marketing and letting people know who we are. So the MOOC does reach, you know, in some sense it monetizes that way. But, yeah, like textbooks, you can charge, uh, you know, some money for people to look at it or use it. And that method might work. And the online, uh, I think, is going to be particularly useful for universities to connect with their alumni, with their executive education programs. Uh, Chicago, you know, we, we teach people all over the world. So think how much more, if you're going to come to an executive education program, which you pay a lot of money for, how much more effective is it to spend a week going through some online materials and then come in person for the discussion than it is to just come and try to listen to a day's worth of lecture and get something out of it? Well, there you monetize it by, by paying for the, um, the tuition of the executive education. And have you any response from any alumni that might have taken your course and asked them, has it heightened your brand awareness? Because it's all about branding now at this stage. 
Yeah, we did. Uh, we did do a survey and say, uh, you know, after you took the MOOC, did you feel better about the University of Chicago? And and a lot of the students said yes. Of course, a lot of them said we already knew about the University of Chicago, so it didn't help that much. But you know, I went into this not thinking, oh boy, here's how I'm going to make a fortune because I'm a salaried employee. Uh, the the only for a university, the monetization question is: look, it, it really putting together a MOOC does. It is like preparing a class. So many universities just say, ah, you know, do this for free. Well, do this for free is not going to work. And the other financial investment for a university, there's not just my salary. Preparing a MOOC that is successful takes uh, the salaries of a very good support staff. And and at Chicago, I had a fantastic support staff. Well, there's, you know, three people who they service three or four MOOCs, but they got to get paid too. Mm -hmm. So universities do have to figure out, you know, at least where they're getting the money to support this stuff. But we don't have to jump. Universities don't have to jump that we're going to make a fortune out of it. Ireland at the moment is trying to position itself globally as the hub of MOOCs. In Ireland, the Royal College of Physicians of Ireland, they've signed a memorandum of understanding with the Indian multinational company Tata Consultancy Services with the aim of creating a large worldwide digital community of physicians. And they're using these MOOCs in association with this college. Um, to train over 300,000 staff of Tata Consultancy, and they're going to roll this out, and they're talking to Institute of Technologies and universities here in Ireland to do so. In the landscape of MOOCs, you know, we started with Chicago and Stanford and places like that teaching high-end, high-fluting courses. But in fact, I don't think that's the big market for MOOCs. Uh, Our classes are designed to a very specific kind of student, and there's not that many of that kind of student out there out there in the world. There's a huge amount of education and training where it's not very high-end material, and but where the what the person brings to it is knowledge of pedagogy, the, the best, like Algebra 1. You don't need a Fields Medal winner to teach you Algebra 1. In fact, it's probably pretty bad at it. You need somebody who studied the pedagogy of how do you teach people Algebra 1. And then that scales all over the world. And even, even other levels, I, I talked to a guy was doing a startup, and he was uh, doing MOOCs in India. Not just train. You, you were thinking of training doctors. Yeah, training doctors, obviously. You know, if you could get everybody around the world who wants to learn how to fix a broken leg to watch the uh, Sur- College of Surgeons of Ireland MOOC on how to fix a broken leg and pay you 10 bucks, that would be great. But even even the lower-level stuff, the guy I was talking to, um, he was putting together his, his, a classic MOOC, he said, was he was consulting with a large hotel chain. And the hotel chain wants to hire people and people to be their front desks. And this is in India. How do you train a front desk clerk to say, hello, sir, how are you? And, you know, all the things a front desk clerk has to say. Well, they're putting together a MOOC to do that. Now, this, I mean, now we're talking about a huge market. Mm. This is not something that a research university does, but, you, but it's something where the technology can be very, you know, cut and dried material, learn how to do this, take a multiple choice test, and that scales up very quickly. And, and But that, that's great. You know, there's a lot of people earning uh, five bucks a day in India who could be earning a lot more if they could be trained to be a hotel clerk. And as well as that is not really subject to change either based on maybe you might have to do a lot of changes with, of course, like asset pricing as well with the change in the variables and data points and so on. Well, yeah, um, a PhD level course has, uh, you know, it lasts only a couple of years before you have to update it. I just wonder about the social environment as well. How can you socialize something like MOOCs? Because people tend to rather work in groups in a traditional setting in university. They tend to congregate together. And how did you overcome that? Or did you find problems in that regard? Well, we we need to do more of that. Uh, You know, one response to MOOCs is, hey, it's 1450. uh, Gutenberg just invented movable type. 
the book has been invented. They'll never hire us for our lectures again. No, that didn't happen, did it? Uh, you know, people didn't just read the book. And I think uh, MOOC 1.0 was, oh, you know, they won't come to school anymore. They'll just watch the lectures online. Well, that didn't work either. The first generation of MOOCs are kind of one way. And we discovered what we discovered with read the book. You know, people are busy. They move on to other things. They don't stick with it. The social environment of a class turns out to be very important to getting people to stick with it. And the current MOOCs, the, the big development, I think, is to move from Web 1.0, one directional, to Web 2.0, social uh, internet, and to recreate that social structure that gets people going. Now, we've got that now. The MOOC experience in, in my class, first of all, it's on a schedule. And then so you watch a video, you do some stuff. And then if you're, if you're getting lost, you go on the forums. So we have discussion forums and we have weekly Google Hangouts. And there is that kind of stuff. But as you know, social media internet is exploding. And I think the next round of MOOC will, will much more fully integrate social media so that the learning experience becomes part of a community of students, uh, just like it is uh, on, on campus. I'm looking forward to 2.0, so... <laughs> Me too. Well, unfortunately, the, the problem with all technology, which I'm fully aware of, is that any investment you make is obsolete three years from now because the whole technology start uh, is uh, you know revamped, and now you have to throw it all out and program it up again, <laughs> uh, which I'm hoping won't happen, but I'm fully braced for that possibility. I'm absolutely intrigued, John, with your initial degree, your BA. <laughs> I've had a number of guests, especially Jack Schwager, who talked about in his books, Market Wizards, about a number of traders and investors. And a lot of them had degrees in physics before they went into finance. And you have a degree in physics as well before you went in and did your PhD in economics. What was your defining moment? Uh, we, I've had a lot of defining moments. Which one do you want? <laughs> I'd be intrigued to, for you to give me a random one without me having to push you. But I was looking okay. for more the economics. Yeah, I'll give you a conversion moment. So physics was, for me, a great undergraduate degree. Physics teaches you quantitative analysis, but it also teaches you modeling. You know, the famous joke about physics is it's the study of massless elephants going down frictionless sandpaper. But, but there's some truth to that. You have to find the elements of, of a problem, simplify it down to, to what's solvable, and then intuit how it works. Not really mathematical. It's about the intuition of, of seeing something work and then describing it mathematically. Economics is pretty much like undergraduate physics, everything before quantum theory. If you're good at mechanics and electricity and magnetism, that mathematical structure is what is behind economics. You will also be good at the modeling part of economics, which is all about throwing out all the real-world details that don't really matter to a particular problem. If the mass of the elephant wasn't important to that problem, we'll just assume a mass of the elephant. That's the key to economics. Is Economics is quantitative parables, and, and you have to make them vivid by making them simple and clear, and then understanding intuitively how to put the pieces together. When I teach economics and finance, people say it's quantitative, it's math, it's hard, and that's not true. They all have the math. It's not solving the equation. It's knowing which equation to solve and then visualizing how the parts move together. So that's why physics is great. My conversion moment to, to being an economist, I'd been a physics major. I took my first economics class. The professor was showing the budget constraint with welfare. So this is uh, supply and demand. And how does somebody make choices about what to do in the presence of welfare, which at the time, this was the uh, late 1970s, in the U.S., below a certain income level, you could get a free apartment and, and all sorts of benefits. And so there's a, there's a kink in the budget set. 
And he showed, uh, you know, once you're below this kink, the incentive to work, if the kink is 15,000 bucks a year, if you're making 14,999, you'd just be an idiot to try to get that extra $2 because you'd lose all the benefits. And for me, a, a light went off because there was an analysis of a deep social problem. Why are people stuck in, in, in welfare? And everything I'd, I'd read up to that moment, you know, you, it's all moral and, oh, this they're lazy, but sociology or culture or dependence, blah, 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 blah. And here it was, and I saw there, but for the grace of God, go I. Every perfectly normal person stuck on that wrong end of the budget constraint would make the same decision. Here was a a value-free, an ethics-free, a morality-free discussion of a social problem that showed exactly where it came from, exactly how to fix it, exactly how the perverse design of the well-intentioned welfare was causing people to get stuck. And that was my conversion moment. I said, oh boy, I can use the tools of physics to understand all these hard social problems that everybody's fighting about and getting so excited about in in a value-free way. And, And I haven't looked back. Well, that was, we're, we're so glad you made that conversion because you brought a lot to, when, when I read those papers with yourself and John Campbell, it was like, ah, another paper, but we're, we're truly glad to have you on our side. Well, thanks. I mean, I, I try to make it simple. <laughs> There's a problem when, when, you know, students see this stuff and they say, oh, it's complicated and I have to make my stuff look complicated. But in fact, a good paper is one where you've done your absolute utmost best to make it as simple as you possibly can. How do you feel about regulation in the U.S. economy, since you're based in the United States, in terms of, say, healthcare or uh, other competitive markets such as taxis and Airbnb? Finance, finance, Airbnb, boy, we have a lot of regulation going on, yeah. Um, Yeah, so I've written about healthcare and I've done some blog posts on, on taxis and financial regulation. There's a lot of faith in our political system that we'll just throw regulators at it and everything will get better. You know, I'm not a free market economist from from ideology. I, I became one just from sad experience that all these things seem to blow up and and uh, have many unintended consequences and and bad incentives. Uh, the, the problem with regulation is the people in the regulated industry quickly figure out that regulations are a fine thing because they can use it to keep competitors out. And there's an old joke about that. There's the the American is crossing into Russia in the time of the old Soviet Union and. And the border guard holds him up for a bribe, and he injects the bribe, and the border guard says, well, what are you talking about? You're you're American. You're a capitalist. You believe in free enterprise, and, and to which the answer is no. I believe in the discipline of competition. Mm-hmm. And that is, uh, you know, there's, there's a, something deep. I guess all economist jokes aren't funny, are they? Uh, <laughs> something deep in that, though. What, what makes free markets work is the discipline of competition, of the ability of new entrants to come in and, and disrupt things. Uh, so, uh, yeah, Uber is uh, a good example because Uber has come in, at least to the U.S., and upended the taxi markets. Now, taxis in the U.S., like most of the rest of the world, are very protected. There's a lot of laws limiting the supply of taxi drivers. Uh, in the U.S., unlike the rest of the world, taxis are awful. <laughs> well, at least unlike most of Europe seems to have very expensive taxis, but they're nice. American taxis were expensive but awful. Uh, and, and what upended this was Uber came in and gave you know supply-side competition. It finally gets you a much cheaper and better service. And that's, that's what we've seen throughout the economy. Where do you get cost containment, better service, innovation? You get it when competitors 
can come in and undermine the protected existing industry. Uh, airlines is another good example. You can't let airlines run on the free market. Oh, no, that would be terrible. All of us had highly regulated uh, airlines. And then, uh, you know, the EasyJets and Ryanairs finally came into Europe. And, and it's just amazing how cheaply you can fly from Ireland to Spain now if you want to, right? Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. Uh, well, now, what, what brought that about? Did the government cost control panel or the airline effectiveness board come in and make that happen. No, uh, a new company coming in and threatening the position of the old companies is, is what did it. And I think in healthcare, we're in the same situation. Healthcare in the U.S. is, is a mess, as you've probably heard. Mm-hmm. Uh, hospitals, if you walk into a hospital, they won't even tell you how much it costs. They will not quote you a price. Uh, so that's a sign of a very protected industry, protected from competition, protected from people who want to peel away their customers. And so as I look at uh, healthcare in the U.S., we're, we're in this big thing talking about health insurance in the U.S., but in fact, the supply of uh, healthcare markets, I think, needs to be opened up in a big way. Regulation is stifling the ability of new people with great ideas, with cost control ideas, with, with the easy jets of Ryanair to come in and make healthcare both better and a lot cheaper. So the Federal Reserve, they have a monopoly on the dollar. So based on that model, should we open up the market to other forms of currency like Bitcoin? Uh, <laughs> or where do you stand on that well, one? You're very good at, uh, at, at, finding the, uh, at, at finding the weak point of an argument, aren't you? Aren't you? Yeah, you know, there's, there's a few things where uh, competition, lots of things where competition is good and the government should get out of it. And then there's a few things that governments do really well. <laughs> and that's and, the or, dollar, is it? Even if they don't do it really well, but it's a, it's sort of a natural monopoly and the government's got to do it. Government debt as a currency, as a standard of value, government debt has a really unique feature that it can't default. Bitcoin had its heart in the right place. Lots of features of Bitcoin I like, but the design was fundamentally flawed in a lot of ways. One of the things that Bitcoin had, which I bemoan, I was singing the praises of my electronic money system, but we have lost anonymity. And that worries me for political reasons as much as economic reasons. You know, anything that's done electronically, then the National Security Administration knows that you bought a pack of gum yesterday if you used your credit card. And cash allows you to do things anonymously. And preserving anonymity was a it's, it's not a good world where every single law has to be obeyed to the letter, or at least that the government has the ability to detect everything you do. And, and Bitcoin promised anonymity, but it didn't really deliver it in the first place. And then Bitcoin, it's, it's prices. It's very risky. The prices go up and down. It, it's on the gold standard model of we need a fixed supply of something yeah. rather than a steady price of something. And so that's unfortunately why Bitcoin, I don't, I don't think, is perfect. But So I, I think what we could get is if the, the standard of value doesn't have to be different, we could agree that we are going to settle all transactions by delivering U.S. government debt. But then we could certainly, especially if regulations allowed us to, we could certainly transact by using stored value cards or money market funds or whatever that allow us to send uh, U.S. government debt back and forth. John, who would be your main influencers when it comes to the study of economics? Who influenced me? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I, I have Past a, or present. I have a list of heroes. I received a, a spectacular education at the University of California. George Akerlof went on to win a Nobel Prize, uh, Roger Crane, Jim Pierce, Tom Rothenberg, people you haven't heard of, but they uh, devoted themselves to their graduate students and just taught me a tremendous amount, which was also useful to me because uh, Chicago was kind of monetarist and they were kind of anti-monetarist, and so it brought me to Chicago with an, an open eye. 
Uh, I went. I was so lucky that I got uh, a job at the University of Chicago. Not, I, I recognized when that phone call came in. This is your one chance at the big time, buddy, and you better take it. And so at Chicago, I've I've been under the influence of Bob Lucas, Lars Hansen, Gene Fama, more remotely, but you know Ed Prescott, Tom Sargent, uh, and, and then a whole host of my of, of my uh, colleagues, my own age and younger. And and, and Chicago was wonderful because. Um, you know, I, I was, I showed up a 27 year old, to, you know, barely shaved and Bob Lucas's office door is open. You know, Bob walked into my office and said, oh, you know, John, that seminar you gave yesterday, I think it was a little wrong. And here's an idea, walks out of my office. I recognize, oh boy, there's a JP paper, write it down. There's my first JP paper right there. So they're not only my heroes, they're my heroes intellectually that they write wonderful stuff by being clear and by being super duper honest. There's no bullshit. They really taught me to take the world seriously, no academic bullshit, no puffing it up and, uh, you know, get to the clean, honest source of the problem. Uh, so those, those have been my intellectual heroes for not, not just for what they did, but for how they did it. All of them. Some rapid questions, if you don't mind answering. Sure. Fama or Mandelbrot? Uh, each, uh, so Mandelbrot each did interesting things. Mandelbrot did, did some, uh, fascinating things involving fractals. Fama invented the field of empirical finance. Mm-hmm. That's not an either or. There's a one guy who did one really interesting thing inventing fractals. And there's another guy who was like the Darwin of, of finance who, who, who created this field of empirical asset pricing under the efficient markets uh, rubric. So. Uh, if I pick one on a desert island, I pick Fama just because I'm, I'm more interested in empirical asset pricing and because he's a great guy. Or is there, a, is there some kind of nepotism going on there? Uh, well, I am incidentally uh, married to his daughter, but uh, he's also <laughs> Fama, you know, uh, these, my heroes are ethical straight arrows. So Fama and I have this relationship that we are colleagues nine to five and we're family uh, five to nine and never the twain, the twain do not meet. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Where I was going with that was the efficient markets or the uh, fractal market hypothesis. So, um, the what is the market hypothesis? The efficient markets or the fractal market hypothesis. So it was just yeah. it's just one was kind of one. Uh, they were both created around the nineteen sixties, developed then, and EMH won out, but obviously has a lot of criticisms going on there also with what happened with the uh, two thousand eight financial crisis. Yeah, I know that. I, I, I think that's a little uh, too easy. So uh, a lot of people say 2008 proves that markets weren't efficient. And the people who say that don't know what the definition of efficient markets is. <laughs> you know, Gene Fama did not tell you to invest in a hedge fund that uh, was investing in subprime mortgages. The efficient markets hypothesis says you can't predict where markets are going. Well, the fact that you couldn't predict in 2008 confirms efficient markets. If, in fact, anybody knew it was happening, then efficient markets would be wrong. If markets always went up 8% per year and never crashed, then efficient markets would be wrong. The fact that it crashes occasionally and unpredictably is exactly what the efficient markets hypothesis says ought to happen. What happened here is is Fama used this word efficiency, and he gave it a, a precise definition. Efficiency means information is reflected in market prices. Everybody else hears that lovely word and says, uh, I once had a newspaper reporter who said, so you believe in the efficient markets hypothesis, meaning uh, markets are self-regulating. It's absolutely, those two things have have nothing to do with each other if you understand the definition. 
Still there? I, I, I'm still there. I love that. I love that. You have some critics out there in terms of the theories, not you personally, but there are critics out there for any theory that gets put out. That's why you have all these schools of thinking also. Well, I mean, Gene Palm is the first to say markets are not efficient. Yeah. Uh, efficient markets. So an efficient market, that's a car- a perfectly competitive market with no transactions costs and no information costs is efficient. And if you just read Fama 1972, it says, okay, our markets don't look like that. Our markets are not efficient. Uh, for example, we know that, that insider information is not reflected in market prices. So the question is always, how efficient or inefficient is a market? How important are all these costs? Uh, how important is, is discount rate variation? And so it's an, it's an organizing principle for empirical work, but it's not a, a something carved in stone as markets are efficient or not. The surprise is that markets looked a lot more efficient than anybody thought and, and that many people still think. Uh, you know, we're finally seeing people putting their money in indexed funds and recognizing that uh, active managers uh, very, very seldom can beat the market. Well, that's a, a sign of people recognizing that markets are pretty darn efficient, if not completely so. What's the one thing that really gets up your back, be it economic, political or social? Bullshit. <laughs> I don't like when I get grumpy is uh, I, I politicized arguments arguments where the political answer comes uh, first and then the argument is made to make it arguments that, that are be that are puffed up to make the person making them seem important so so ideological political arguments basically bullshit drives me nuts <laughs> so students beware uh students um that's just sloppiness and yeah. usually not politicized and and uh they can be taught to, to know better. But in, certainly in the policy discussions and excessive overconfidence, there's a lot of people who say, you know, uh, we, we need to have a big stimulus, a hundred-year-old idea, and I just thought up a great theory on the plane of why, and, and so the federal government should spend a trillion dollars on my theory. And that kind of, that's the kind of superficial analysis that drives me nuts. Uh, you know, we need to be a little humble about what we know, and uh, a little more serious in our discussions and, and have the uh, answers follow from the questions and not the other way around. I don't necessarily follow American politics, but it's quite interesting. And based on what you're saying there about avoiding bullshit, to me, it seems the libertarians or Ron or Rand Paul seem to be fitting that. Would you think similarly or am I Brad? not kind of delving too much into politics to actually make an opinion? Yeah, what drives me nuts is bullshit and unethical behavior, of which there's some in the policy and in the blogosphere. That that really drives me nuts. Now, now you think you so you're putting the libertarians on in the bullshit circle or outside the bullshit? Oh, circle? outside, outside. Uh, yeah, because I'm I'm actually I'm very encouraged. My own politics are roughly. I consider myself a practical libertarian, meaning oh. I think this is the this is the structure of society that works best. Uh, if you believe in free markets, then and and you also make sense to believe in freedom in social affairs as well. I don't understand why free marketers want the government to control your your social life and who you sleep with, and I don't really understand why people who think you should be able to sleep with whoever you want uh, think the government can run the markets uh, better. So I believe in freedom and limited government, and I believe in that because because I think you know when we look over history, that's that's what works. Now, so in, in the American political scene, I'm, what I'm glad to see is that these sets of ideas are gaining currency. Uh, Ten years ago, if you said libertarian, people thought of you as some sort of kook with some, you know, with your guns and your canned food in a compound in Utah or something of the sort. 
and now you can say it on mainstream and most people accept, oh, that, that's a, that's a, a reasonable political idea. And most young people in the U.S. are kind of like they believe in freedom, personal freedom, social freedom, religious freedom, freedom to start new companies without the government telling you what you want to do. So I, I think it's hopeful. That's not an endorsement of particular candidates, but it's an endorsement of a set of ideas, which I think is the natural thing to capture the center of American politics. John, do you have any internet resource that you'd like to share with our listener? <laughs> I have a web page. Yeah. And I've, you know, we're, we're always marketing ourselves. So just Google John Cochran and you'll find me uh, both on my web page and my blog. And I must say, it's an, um, an amazing blog. And you, you cover so many topics, climate change, health, macro, micro. And it's a go-to resource for any up-and-coming economist who wants to get fantastic information and also uh, with other colleagues or any trained or well-established economist. It's a, it's a go-to resource. Absolutely amazing. Um, well, thanks. Well, I'm trying to reach economists as well as just a comment on public policy. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Do you have any recommended book? I'm going to put your own book, Asset Pricing, on my show notes page. But is there any recommended book that you'd like to share with our listeners? Oh, boy, you're putting me on the spot. There's, uh, there's uh, too many and too few. So I'm not going to... And nobody reads books anymore anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Great. John, thank you so much for being so inspiring for joining me on Economic Rockstar. I had a blast and I personally learned a lot from you. Share with our listeners again where they can find you. Just Google John Cochran and you'll find out my faculty webpage for academic stuff or johnhcochran.blogspot.com or Google Grumpy Economist. You'll find me on the web. You can find all the links to John on economicrockstar.com forward slash John Cochran. John, thank you for being so generous with your time. It's good. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure and a good interview. You are an economic rock star. <laughs> I wish. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I showed up a 27-year-old, you know, barely shaved, and Bob Lucas's office door is open. You know, Bob walked into my office and said, "Ah, oh, you know, John, that seminar you gave yesterday, I think it was a little wrong, and here's an idea. Walks out of my office. I recognize, oh, boy, there's a JP paper. Write it down. There's my first JP paper right there. So they're not only my heroes. They're my heroes intellectually. That They write wonderful stuff by being clear and by being super-duper honest. There's no bullshit. They really taught me. They take the world seriously. No academic bullshit. No puffing it up.